Amen. Thank you, Larry and worship team and church. Man, it is good. I agree with Larry. What a beautiful job you guys are doing uh, singing this morning and more than singing, worshiping uh, Lord Jesus. So uh, honored to be here with you. If I haven't met you, if you're new here, uh, my name is Jason. I have the honor of, of being pastor here at the church leading um, uh, amidst a, a humble body of elders and the people who are seated around you. Um, this is the Solid Rock family, and so we're glad you're here. Um, I'm excited to open God's Word with you this morning. Uh, we're going to be opening to Revelation 19 in just a minute. Um, I'm going to start somewhere else, but I invite you to turn to 19. That's where we're going to camp out for most of the morning. Um, as you turn there, we're just thinking about um, the prayer that we just sang when we asked the sweet Holy Spirit of God to come mend our hearts. And, uh, and so... Um, one of the things that I know is true here is that all across this room, there are individual lives and hearts and souls that he's actually mending. Some of you have already received a fresh touch of the Holy Spirit this morning, and he's mending something in you. And so um, when, we, when we invite the Holy Spirit to mend our hearts, what we're doing is we're inviting the author of the universe to be the co-author of our life, if you've thought of it like that. More than just fixing your problem, God wants to write the story of your life. And so what we mean by that is this. This is why I use co-author because, see, our part in the story is writing the mess. We're really good at that part, right? Give us a blank sheet of paper and a pen, and we'll write, about, we'll write messes into our daily routine every day. But when we come before God and we submit ourselves to the, the tender work of the Holy Spirit, what we're doing is we're saying, God, would you write a better story? Would you write over the things that I've written the story of redemption. And so that's happening all across our church in small ways and in individual lives. But one of the things that we're seeing is that God is writing a bigger story with the people of this church. And this is a really exciting time uh, for us. And I'm, I'm, I, it's not cliche. I am optimistically excited about what God is already doing and planning for this year for us as a church. We've, we're already off to an amazing start. Um, along with that, um, is going to come a lot of just discussions we need to have. We've got an all-member meeting coming up in, a, in a, about a week and a half on the 19th. I really want to invite you to come be a part of that meeting. Uh, even if you haven't joined yet, you're just waiting on the next Connect class, um, come listen to what's going on in the church. We need to talk through some things. I was telling the first service, um, we're a lot like a family of five pregnant with twins living in a two-bedroom apartment. Um, there's a lot of excitement and activity happening, uh, but we've got to figure out who's going to meet where and what's this space going to be used for because we're out of space. Um, we're going to be looking at the potential for adding a third service this year. We want to hear from you on that at that all-member meeting. Um, we're off to a great start financially. Uh, we've put in place a new financial system. Some of you are getting automated receipts. You'll start getting those. And so we want to explain that to you at the all-member meeting. So so much to talk about. New buildings, architects, the future, new leaders who are in place, new members who are joining, and all that we want to go over at the, the all-member the all meeting uh, in about a week and a half on the 19th. So please come be a part of that time as we just talk about all that God is doing. And if you're just visiting with us, just know uh, you stepped into a, a family that is full of excitement right now, and God is doing amazing work among us. So uh, welcome. Glad you're here. All right. Uh, that was all for free. They didn't pay me to say any of that. I just off the cuff. So here we go. I want to start in Luke 14. Here's why. In Luke 14, Jesus is sitting down with a group of religious leaders eating dinner. He's been invited to one of their homes. And he begins talking to them about the idea of being invited to a meal, a big feast. And he begins to talk in parable, but which is, is a word story. It's a, it's a way to illustrate truth with a word story. So when Jesus says it was like a farmer who goes out and sows seed, he's teaching a parable. Now, 
In these parables, though, at this dinner, he also points to an eternal feast twice, so we know what Jesus has on his mind as he's teaching this parable about a great feast. He's thinking about a great and final feast, the wedding feast that marks the beginning of eternity. And so we're going to pick this up in Luke 14 about halfway through the conversation. So we've already missed one of the references where Jesus talks about the final days. And then he, in verse 15... We'll pick it back up. This is Luke 14, verse 15. Uh, When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, well, if if what you said is true, Jesus, then blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. They just got through with their meal. Jesus just started talking about the final feast and being invited to that feast. And one of the, the listeners went, whoa, well, blessed is anybody who gets to be at that table. And so Jesus rolls into verse 16 and talks about the invitation to the great feast. He says in verse 16, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, well, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And then another said, well, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And then another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. And the servant came and reported these things to the master. So what, what's happening is Jesus said, um, it was like a great, there's going to be like a great feast. He's using a parable to explain this. And it's like all of the, the, the people who you would expect were invited. The friends, the relatives, the high profile people in society were all invited. But when it came time for the banquet, everybody had an excuse. Everybody had something better going on. Then he rolls on and he says, well, the master of these So the servant came and reported these things to the master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Well, then go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. He's saying to his servant, Well, go find some people that are going to show up who aren't going to be too busy for the meal that I'm going to provide. And then the servant said, Well, sir, what you have commanded has been done. I've done that. And still there's room. And the master said to the servant, well, then do this. Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Now, Jesus is teaching a parable in that particular setting, but he's thinking about eternity. And he's talking about how just like when people are invited to a great banquet, we typically invite our friends, we invite the people we want to be there, the high-profile people, but we neglect the, the ones that are lame and poor and crippled and the people who live in the slums and the, right, the have-nots in society. And so Jesus said, this is, this is kind of like my kingdom. And he's, he's talking to these religious leaders, by the way, these teachers of the law. I've invited all the high-profile people. They were too busy. So the invitation of the gospel is going to go out to the have-nots in society, those who are spiritually crippled, spiritually blind, those who have been right, discarded by society. That's who the gospel is going to go out and invite to come fill my banquet hall. Now, that's going to set us up for chapter 19 of Revelation where we read about this, this final great wedding feast and those who have been invited. All right. Revelation 19 is where we're going 
now. Revelation 19, starting in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Now, we're, we're kind of getting opening scene here of something amazing that's about to go down. But it's not the first time we've heard people described this way. Throughout the book of Revelation, we've read that there will be a gathering of the nations one day that's such a great gathering of people that when you hear it, it'll sound like the roar of many waters. Even the followers of Satan have been described that way. We read last week where this great Babylon, this, uh, this, this city, this collection and gathering of rebellion against God is seated among many waters. And the waters, we're told, reflect all these people who've pledged allegiance to the Antichrist, the beast, and have gathered to make war against Jesus. We read it in the prophets of the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 2 describes the gathering of people this way. Isaiah 2 verse 2 says this, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the nations shall flow to it. We've, we've actually referred to this one other time in the Revelation series. This, this imagery that the prophet Isaiah had about the end times where he sees the kingdom of God finally established in such a way that it's no longer incognito, cognito, it's no longer the smaller entity on earth, but it has risen up in such a way it's become the highest mountain. And instead of the rivers flowing away from it, the rivers reflecting the nations, the rivers flow to it. It's beautiful imagery of the day that we're about to read about here in Revelation 19. Now, in a practical sense, um, I don't know if you've ever stood on the banks of a flooding river. If you, if you have, you know what I'm about to describe. There's something incredibly powerful about that volume of water moving, right? You can hear it. You can hear timber cracking, right? You can feel it in the ground even when, when a tree catches or a boulder is turned. You can feel, right, the rumble of that powerful water. That's being used over and over again in Scripture to describe our singing in eternity. Now think about it. So what we do in here, when we gather together with one voice and we sing, is really just a hiccup compared to that. The most, I'll say this, and so here's something. Uh, ladies, I won't leave you out for a minute, but men, um, one of the most powerful worship environments I've been in in this life is gathering with several thousand other men singing to Jesus. Like there is something incredibly powerful when the voices of men come together with all of the, the bass and right the low baritone noises coming together. You can feel the building rumble. Some of you have been to like a Promise Keepers or a men's conference where that's taking place. Ironically, men oftentimes are the most reluctant to sing in the church. Think about it. This multitude is the gathering of the sopranos, the altos, the tenors, the baritones, and the basses, right? You've got a part to sing. And so what we do here in this room week after week is just the hiccup. It's the way I like to think of it. It's like going to see a great orchestra play and about 20 minutes before the orchestra starts, musicians begin to file out into the orchestra pit and begin to tune their instruments, especially the string instruments. And you can hear musical notes, but it's not really coming together yet. 
And you can tell, oh, that's going to sound good in a minute, but it's, right now it kind of is different from the key of this one over here and sounds kind of chaotic. And so really um, what we're waiting on, though, is for it to all come together, right? For the maestro to step up, the conductor to stand up and pull it all together into one piece. This is the way I think about Sunday mornings here for us as a church. It's a lot like tuning up for this moment. We're just tuning up, tuning up our hearts, getting ready to do what we were created to do eternally, to sing with one voice. And John describes our voice this way. It's the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and the sound, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. And as we sing the words, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns, it's like you can feel the thunder, like, like feel the rumble like a distant thunder echoing as the saints gather to sing. That's powerful. That's powerful. I'm ready. I want to be in that moment. Now, here's the thing. We're just getting started, though, right? The, the great wedding feast is just getting started. The groom hasn't even shown up yet. And the saints are worshiping. Lord Jesus. At the return of Jesus, the saints will unite with one thunderous voice to worship the king. One thunderous voice. That's out of scripture to worship the king. Now, verse 7. Verse 7 begins to explain why we're so enthralled in worship. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. Why? For the marriage of the lamb has Come. Now, this is being written at the end of the first century, at a time in human ex existence and in a culture very different from ours. This is not your run-of-the-mill, go to the JP and get married experience, or rent out the chapel, invite 60, 80 of your closest friends, have a wedding ceremony, and then have some cake and punch afterwards. Like, the, 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 the wedding itself was a feast, huge ceremony, right? Hours, days set aside for this to take place. Right? So this isn't just save the date for a Saturday. This is like, hey, we, you're invited to be here. It's an honor to be here. Plan on being with us to celebrate this great moment. And so the saints have gathered to rejoice, to exalt, to give glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. We just sing about that. Right, like a bride waiting on the groom. We'll be a church ready and waiting for you. The, the, the most, I would say, the prominent metaphors in the Bible used to describe our relationship as a relationship between a husband and a wife. All throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament. We're the bride. He's the groom. Matter of fact, in Ephesians 5, in Ephesians 5, where um, we're given this very, very helpful marriage advice, um, and not everybody likes this marriage advice, but wives, submit to your husbands, right? As the church submits to Jesus, you submit to your husbands. And then we turn it, husbands, love your wives the way that Jesus loves the church and lays himself down for her. And so it's great marriage advice. However, we get to end of that passage and Paul says, oh, by the way, this great mystery I'm talking about is actually not your marriage. I'm talking about Jesus and the church. Your marriage just serves as an illustration for the greater reality of the bride of Christ, the church, waiting for her marriage, her permanent eternal marriage to her groom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this, 
marriage thing that we're given here on earth, which by the way, Genesis 2, first institution, is not really for us. It's to reflect him. And in every marriage you witness, what you're seeing is a snapshot of this moment when the bride has made herself ready. And brides, you work hard to make yourself ready, right? We're going to talk about making ourselves ready in just a second. Waiting for the groom to show up and to take us. Now, there's some interesting wording here we need to not gloss over. The bride has made herself ready. Verse 8, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, typically this is a place where theologians will begin to shift into different camps of thought. One is one camp of thought is that the righteous deeds of the saints that's being described here is every good work you do. So whatever your good deeds are, in this moment, that's what you get to wear. So if your good deeds are, deeds are represented with, with, uh, with, you know, with precious stones, then you'll have a precious stone for every good deed. And so that this is all the good stuff that you've done. Now, if that's the case, I'm in trouble. There's another theological camp that would say, no, 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 this is all the good stuff that Jesus has done on your behalf. So this is all about what Jesus has clothed you with. So your linens in this moment are the linens that Jesus has given to you. And what I would say, rather than dividing into camps, is actually to see this as really the merging of the two. The good deeds of the saints is called out here, right? The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It's the good, righteous deeds that you do. However, we have to not gloss over the word that we were granted to clothe ourselves, meaning what? That Jesus himself has empowered us to even do that. So it's both. It's the righteousness of Jesus. At the moment of salvation, Jesus clothes you with his righteousness. When my father looks at you, he's going to see you as pure, perfect, white. Right? Infused with what? As the Holy Spirit empowers you and works in you, good deeds. Right? It's the Holy Spirit doing that in you. It's, right, still glory goes to God. It's, it's both. The good deeds of the saints are only done because the Holy Spirit of God works in you to empower you. You tracking with me on that? It's both. We don't have to slip into camps, right? Just don't show up for this moment just trusting in your good deeds because you're going to be poorly dressed, right? You need the righteousness of Christ to clothe you, to empower you. But in this moment, how sweet it is because your identity is going to be purity, perfectly righteous. You're going to be wearing white on purpose. The, uh, the color white is used a lot in the book of Revelation, by the way. Once it's used to reflect the wisdom and stature of Jesus. Revelation 1, it's used three times to describe a war horse. We're going to look at one of those in just a minute. Uh, it's used one time to describe the throne of God and over 10 times to describe the righteous identity of the saints of God. When you receive the forgiveness of Jesus, it's an all-consuming forgiveness. It, it penetrates to the depths of who you are and cleanses you perfectly pure. And so your righteousness is granted to you. Matter of fact, if we go back to Ephesians 5, I was reading that just a minute ago. Look at what Ephesians 5 says about this. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And again, I haven't done that for my wife. We're not talking about my marriage. We're talking about Jesus and the church here. Let me, let me, 
let me change some wording out and put you in instead of she. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify you, having cleansed you by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present you to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that you might be holy and without blemish. You feel what's happening in Revelation 19 now? All of that's coming together. And so here on earth, you have, if you've trusted in Jesus, you've been saved, purified, been made righteous. But there's still this ongoing layer of struggle with the flesh, isn't it? And some days it feels like, oh, the flesh is winning. Other days, right, the Holy Spirit's winning. And there's a sanctification struggle going on. We're talking about the day when the flesh is gone. And all that remains is what is perfectly pure and righteous, that which has been purified by Jesus. You will be clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. And this linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, both the righteousness of Jesus and that which he has done through you. Think of it that way, what he's done to you and what he's done through you, the righteous deeds of the saints. All right. At the return of Jesus, the saints will stand before him in righteousness and purity. At the return of Jesus, the saints will stand before him in righteousness and purity. Why is that so, such a big deal? Because you can stand before me and you can fool me, right? And you can put on the facade and you can look righteous and pure. On the inside, though, you could be as corrupt and, and wicked as any of them. But in this moment... Right? You can't do that before Jesus. Right? This is a moment where shame is gone. There's no hiding. Right? It's all gone. And you're standing there completely transparent, secured in righteousness before Jesus. Verse 9. Verse 9. I want you to remember what we read from Luke now, okay, about those who are invited. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So now when Jesus was on earth interacting with the Pharisees in their house, using a parable to describe God's kingdom about those who were invited first, made excuses, and they were too busy and had too much going on. But then the invitation went out to the are-nots, the have-nots, the crippled, the lame, the blind, right? Those who were discarded by society, they came and filled the kingdom. Remember that? That parable? But we know on his mind he was thinking about eternity because of the way he was responding to the questions. This is what he's talking about. And so the angel is, very, is validating that, saying, man, Right, Because we've already had the, the people showing up like the roar of many waters. People aren't just trickling into the room quietly. We come flooding into this room, into this wedding feast. right? Singing the same song. Worshiping and exalting Jesus. And there's an angel there and he's listening, he's looking, he's saying, Blessed are those who were invited to this wedding feast. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, this is the second time we've seen John fall down to his face in worship. The first time he was in the presence of Jesus. Now we, we get this, this idea of this... Um, crescendo building and he's overwhelmed and he, he falls down again and, and Jesus hadn't even shown up yet and he's already fallen down in worship and the angel says, whoa, 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 John, don't, you, don't worship me. The one you want to worship, he's coming, get ready. And he's about to 
if you will, open the doors to the wedding feast so the groom can come in. So he says, don't worship me, worship God. Verse 11. Now, um, before we even read verse 11, okay, I, I, I really, I enjoy weddings, most of them. I enjoy most weddings. If I've been to yours or, or performed your wedding, I loved yours. It's the other ones I didn't care for. Um, there are certain things about Christian weddings I just love, um, it, it, where my heart is enthralled in worship. And, and, and I hope this for all you young people. I hope you get to experience what I'm about to describe. Um, so there's this moment, right, where, and I love, because I always get like the best seat when I'm performing the wedding, because I'm watching. There's a moment where at the back of the room, the doors open. And the bride walks in in radiant glory. And I get the privilege of saying, in honor of the bride, all rise. And everybody turns. You can just feel the room turn. But here's where it gets sweet for me. I, I almost always do this. I see her and I go, wow. And then I like to turn to my left and look at him. And see that moment where they just lock. They may have seen each other a thousand times. Right? 10,000 times. But there's something holy about that moment. Where the groom locks eyes on the bride for the first time that day. Right? And the room can feel it. That's what's about to be described right here. The bride has made herself ready. And the angel said, hey, 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 calm down, calm down. Let's, let's get quiet for a minute because I'm not the one you need to be excited about. And then look at verse 11. Then I saw heaven open. The doors to the room just open. I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Set that to music. Yeah. This is how our groom enters the wedding feast. Not nervous and twitchy like most of the grooms that I work with, right? With his half-hearted groomsmen who are over here texting and doing other stuff and, right? His groomsmen are seated on white horses too. This is how they show up. Now we're gonna get to the why they show up this way next. But you got this picture? Not a, not a trip, typical North American wedding, is it? Any of you show up on a white horse to your wedding? Maybe you did, but beyond that, you're, you're not going to be able to fulfill the rest of this, right? So this is his entrance into the room. We're going to talk through some of this. First of all, he is seated on a white horse, and he is called Faithful and True. Now, he's going to be given three specific names, and then once he's going to be given a name, or talk to, they're going to talk, he's going to talk about his name that nobody knows yet. Say, first name, faithful and true. Why is that so significant? Okay, hear me on this. I don't know how I can amplify this for you. We live in a world of uncertainty that is steeped in, in unfaithfulness and untruth. We do. 
And, and I can't, can't emphasize this enough. It's almost like the frog in the boiling pot of water to the point where we've just become very complacent and almost expecting unfaithfulness, right? So we, we've, we have skepticism. We're, we're people of skepticism. We're people who are slow to believe. We're people who have, even from the people around us, began to guard our hearts and expect what? Unfaithfulness, untruth. We expect it from our politicians. We expect it from our leaders. Even with uh, the church today, we expect it from church leaders. We expect it from our spouses. And so this, like, try to grasp what's happening here. This is the moment in human history where all that's gone. When you gaze upon the eyes of the groom who is called faithful and true, there'll be no more lingering, wondering, doubt, shame are all gone. And you'll see him go, that's right, that's true. I can count on that. I haven't been able to count on the people around me, even well-meaning people, right? And they haven't been able to count on me, but I can count on him. The Apostle Paul says this, I think is profoundly connected, that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Every promise that God has ever made is finding its yes in this moment. Now think about it. Now, in small ways, we've already received some yeses to his promises, right? So if you've been forgiven of sins, you've received, that promise has been fulfilled. Um, yet there's still a lingering struggle with flesh, right? So not all the way fulfilled. Um, maybe you've walked through a dark time or a time of brokenness and you've prayed for healing and the Holy Spirit has healed you. You've experienced the fulfillment of God's promise in a small way. But all those small promises are leading up to a bigger promise where Jesus shows up as the groom and all the promises of God are finding their yes right now in this moment in human history. Everything is culminating and building to this point. He is the one who is faithful and true. And at the return of King Jesus, we will see him that way as faithful and true. The next thing that we read is this. Not only is he called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. So there's something different about this wedding than any wedding I've ever been to, right? Um, maybe this is the after party where people start brawling or arguing or fighting. But what's going on in this wedding ceremony where Jesus shows up with his boys on white horses ready to make war? So you need to get this imagery in your mind. That's why we've been walking through this verse by verse. There is an enemy who has waged war against Jesus and he's attacking the bride. And so it says Jesus shows up at this ceremony. The enemy is there attempting to take captive the bride. So before the marriage can take place and the ceremony can go on, what does he have to do? He has to conquer the enemy. So he's showing up to make war. You can see it in his eyes. You can see it in his eyes. I, sorry, I'm going to go Braveheart on you for a minute. It's that, it's that moment where William Wallace in Braveheart, uh, he gives a speech and one of the guys is like, Great speech. What are we to do now? And he's like, uh, you know, well, what do we come to do? And he goes to take off, and they're like, hey, where are you going? And was, was that Scottish? Uh, and so, but William Wallace turns to him, and he has a look in his eyes, and he says what? I'm going to pick a fight, right? Jesus shows up, right, and isn't caught off guard by the fight. He shows up ready to pick a fight. This battle has been waging and has been brewing it, right? The storm clouds have been gathering for this moment. And he's choosing to bring his enemies to nothing. 
in front of his bride, right? And to take her for himself, that which is already his. And so he shows up with fire in his eyes and in righteousness he judges and makes war. At the return of Jesus, we will see him as the righteous warrior, a righteous warrior. Not just a strong warrior, not an eager warrior, right? A righteous warrior. What does that mean? That what he fights for is right. It's just. He's not driving a political agenda, right? He's not trying to build false allegiance. He's simply showing up to do what is right. And when Jesus makes war, he makes war righteously. Right? So, so here's where we're at right now. Hanging in the balance now is the great moment. What's going to happen next? We'll get there in just a minute. Notice, too, that on his head were many diadems. This is fancy Bible talk for crowns. Think of it that way, crowns. We've already seen crowns show up several times in Revelation. Revelation 4, the elders, uh, 24 elders gathered in the throne of God. They laid down their crowns. We saw that even uh, the, Satan portrayed as a dragon, the Antichrist as the first beast, the false prophet as the second beast. Even they are mimicking kingship, right, by wearing diadems, certain number of crowns. So now we have Jesus showing up to the wedding, prepared for war, and on his head are many crowns. John's not even qualifying it with a number, right? Not just seven crowns. Like, he had many crowns. I'm not even going to try to count them. Reflecting what? The, the magnitude of his kingship. As we see Jesus return, at the return of Jesus, we will see him as the king of all kings. We briefly touched on that last week, the king of all kings. Remember the false trinity, the Antichrist, is beginning to portray himself as the king of all kings. How's he doing that? He's gathered underneath him ten kings, right? And he's gained their allegiance, and we're going to see him in just a second. And he's portraying himself to be a king of kings. We will see him as a victorious warrior and the king of all kings. And then he has a name written that no one knows but himself. So he's called Faithful and True, called, called the Word. So he's been given these names, but now... We've one of the, the uh, descriptions that he has a name written that no one knows but himself. So um, my best take at this, it reminds me of what Jesus said to the church in Pergamum in Revelation 2. When he was talking about the salvation of the saints, he was writing to the church in Pergamum, chapter 2. He said this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. You feel the comparison there? So I don't know that that imagery in Revelation 19, the wedding feast of Jesus, is so much about him uh, just, just withholding part of his identity. I think that's part of it. Because remember, the enemies of God are still present. There's a name that he's known by that they won't know him by. No one knows it but himself. But the same thing was said about us. And so I see, I see this intimate connection here in eternity. Now, when we get to Revelation 20 and 21, the new name is going to come up again. But at this moment in time, all the followers of Jesus have a name that no one knows but themselves, written on the white stone. And Jesus himself, right, has a name that nobody knows that only he himself knows. There's this intimate connection here between us and, uh, and Jesus. And so... Let me go out on a limb with the wedding metaphor, and if I'm off um, theologically, correct me later. So 
This is the way I'm portraying it. That moment in the wedding ceremony where the minister steps up and says, may I be the first to introduce to you Mr. and Mrs., I'll use my wedding, Jason Williams. Now think about it. That's the first time, right, that my wife has been called that. First time. May I be the first to introduce to you Mr. and Mrs. Jason Williams or Jason and Hallie Williams. Now, now, on the flip side, it's the first time that I've ever been called that, right? I've been called Mr. before, but not Mr. and Mrs. Jason Williams, right? I'm, now I'm intimately connected with her, and we have a new name now that we share. And so this is what I see and what I sense and what's happening here, that at this wedding feast, there's still an identity to be revealed, a name that no one knows but the person himself. We'll get to that again, okay? We'll pick that up in a, in a few chapters. All right, so moving on. In the return, at the return of Jesus, we will see him as our intimate savior. This is the beautiful part of it. Victorious warrior, king of all kings, true and righteous. And oh yeah, don't forget, he's the groom coming to get his bride, which is us. Intimate savior. Joe Warren said this earlier, we don't want a religion for you. We want a relationship for you. The God of the universe is not calling you to become one of his pawns or to simply join and become a accounted member of his kingdom. He's calling you to join him at the table. It's a very intimate relationship invitation. At the return of Jesus, we'll see him as our intimate savior. Now, verse 17 is where the battle, first part of the battle is gonna take place, okay? And it begins this way. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun. There's an angel standing, the sun shining on the angel. And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come and gather for the great supper of God. Pause. That's kind of strange. Here's what's happening. This angel is recognizing what is about to happen. And these birds circling above are the vultures and the buzzards, the birds that eat flesh. And they're being summoned in expectation of something. So the angel, in anticipation about what's about to happen, right? The angel is sitting there, sees the enemy of, of God beginning to wage war and to great allegiance and to bring war against Jesus. The bride has made herself ready. Jesus walks into the room or rides, gallops into the room on his war horse with all of his, his army on the war horses. And the angel's like, this is about to get ugly. I'm going to go ahead and invite the vultures to come on in because you're going to be needed here soon. Look at this. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. It's almost word for word the same description of those who've pledged allegiance to follow the Antichrist. Birds, go ahead and come on in. This army over here, Right? Something's about to happen. Some, something bad's about to go down. Come on in. And I saw the beast, the Antichrist, and the kings of earth, remember the ten kings from last week, with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Verse 20. And <laughs> the beast was captured. Whoa, how did we get there? And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. The two were thrown alive into the lake 
of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now, the first time I read that this week, I went, oh, I kind of cringed, right? It's kind of kind of gross and descriptive, but let's just be honest. I mean, compared to the cross, that's rated G stuff, right? Add some Phil Collins music, and you got a Disney movie. That's like... This is like JV type stuff. Like compared to the, I mean, I know I shouldn't have cut the joke, but like compared to the magnitude of the suffering and the, and the, and the, and the death and the, right, and the torment of the cross, this is JV stuff, right? Now think about it. What Jesus endured on the cross, he endured willingly. I mean, think about the restraint. This one riding the horse was on the cross, while people mocked him and spat on him and punched him and kicked him and stabbed him and beat him and made fun of him and tempted him and taunted him on the cross. What restraint? I mean, he could have blinked an eyelash and caused an earthquake and everybody could have died. He's simply shown up and in his presence, the false prophet and the, the Antichrist are thrown into the lake of fire. He, we don't even read that he's even lifted a finger. All the rest who go with him, just the words coming out of his mouth, right, are, are bringing them to nothing. What restraint he had on the cross. Think about that. He was even tempted. If you're the son of God, come down off that cross, right? Do something about it. What restraint. But I don't want you to think of Jesus on the cross as not a fierce and righteous warrior. You know he was making war on the cross as well. And in a very similar heart pattern to what we see here, Jesus stepping between the bride and the enemies at the cross, he was stepping between his bride and her enemies. Think about it. The taunting that you and I deserve, Jesus stepped in between us and the punishment we deserved and the taunting we deserved. He said, here, put it on me. When they were spitting on his face, that was Jesus, your groom, stepping in between your accusers and saying, nope, don't spit on them, spit on me. Taunt me. You need to punish me. You see, the, the cross is the wrath of God poured out. And everything that took place in those brutal moments of the cross, Jesus is standing in the ways of, as a mighty warrior, righteous warrior, saying what? Bring it right here. Pour it out right here. Leave my bride alone. Pour it out right here. And as this passage comes to an end, we see the great divide in human history that we've been warned is coming. The great divide. Not only is the beast captured with the false prophet and thrown into the lake of fire, the rest were slain, the followers, rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of Jesus. I want to look at something Jesus said in Matthew 25 with you for just a brief moment. Because Jesus teaches about this great divide, this coming day when there will be a separation between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And in Matthew 25, Jesus uses the parable of the sheep and goats to talk about this. Some of you are familiar with that. He will separate the people like the sheep, like a shepherd separates sheep from goats. Look at Matthew 25, verse 31 with me. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, 
then he will sit on his glorious throne. I believe that's a direct reference to what we're reading in Revelation. This is Jesus talking. He's on earth. He's teaching. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Skip down to 41. Then he will say to those on his left. Now here's the words, right? It's the words that come out of his mouth that we just read about in Revelation 19. I think these are the words that are being referred to. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. Prepare for the devil and his angels. Verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So we get to this moment in Revelation 19, human history. There'll be no excuses. There'll be no, I wish we'd have known that. I'd have got me some Jesus t-shirts, man. I'd have been singing the song. I'd have been all in. But you got to understand this. You know, the, 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 the dividing mechanism, the rudder that shifts the course of every human life is such a small thing. You know what it is? It's faith. That's it. Faith. The problem when you get to this point won't be that you didn't have enough Christian t-shirts. The problem will be that you didn't believe. That's the problem. That's the deciding factor between the sheep and the goats. Go on and read the rest of that. And it seems to be their works, their good works, what they did and what they didn't do, the sheep and the goats. What are the good works? These are the righteous deeds of the saints, infused and fueled and empowered by what? Faith. You don't believe you're not going to do anything for God. Be no righteous deeds coming out of your life. right? It's faith that ignites good works in us. The dividing factor between the sheep and the goats is faith. There's even a parable where Jesus talks about a, a rich man and a poor man. And, uh, and he, he creates this imagery of eternity. And he says there's this, great, so there's this rich man who on earth lived for himself and wouldn't help poor people. And there's a poor man who sat at the door and begged. And now in eternity, there's a great chasm, a great divide between the two. And the rich man now is being tormented. He treated himself really well on earth, but in eternity, right, there's torment. He looks across the chasm, and it's, again, this is parable. It's not necessarily a real story. And he cries and begs for mercy. Sees Lazarus, the poor man. He begs, hey, just come across the chasm and give me a drip of water. I'm, I'm in so much anguish. And, and the response is, well, we can't cross the chasm. What's done is done. You're over there. I'm over here. We can't come over there. He says, well, then, well, then go back, right? Go back and warn my brothers so that they don't end up where I'm at. And, of course, that can't be done, right? Because what is done is permanent. What we're reading about is the moment in human history where the great divide happens. The kingdom of God, right, is now the great tall mountain standing in prominence. All of his enemies have been made a footstool. The kingdom of earth has now become the kingdom of God. And there's a great divide between God and his followers and everyone else. And, And I promise you, um, you know, Jesus isn't going to call me over and ask me to bring attendance records for Solid Rock to decide which side you get to be on. Yeah, I'm uh, looking at this uh, elder over here, and I notice they missed two elder meetings. Uh, you know, that doesn't matter. Every person who becomes a sheep, who steps into the kingdom of God, will stand on the righteous merit of Jesus and Jesus alone. Right? Every one of us, elders included, your pastor included, none of us will have any other merit. 
right? It's simply what you do with Jesus. I want to end here. If you're taking notes, at the return of Jesus, he will establish an eternal divide between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. At the return of Jesus, he will establish an eternal divide between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Let's end here. The deciding factor is faith. What are you going to do with Jesus? I mean, I'm asking you, what are you going to do with Jesus? Some of you have already answered that question. You've answered it, you know. I trust him, I follow him. I'm still struggling with the flesh, but ultimately day after day, right? Holy Spirit is winning over, changing me, be more like him. I can't wait till this day, till that battle's done, but I'm already in. Other people in the room today still haven't decided what you're going to do with Jesus. Maybe you're one of the religious leaders sitting down with Jesus and he's like, hey, here's the deal. You're going to come with all these lame excuses, really? I'm inviting you to the wedding feast of eternity and you're too busy? Okay, if that's your excuse, okay. Many people bring excuses. Many people bring the excuse of, well, you just don't know how messed up I've been. You don't know how messed up I still am. Remember, gosh, remember this. Jesus wants to co-author your life. Bring him the story you've written and all your messes, and guess what he's going to do? He's going to rewrite over your messes the word redemption. Every mess he's going to clean up for you by faith. And if you have not come to the place in your life where you have trusted in Jesus and him alone, I'm telling you, as sure as I'm standing here, I believe this is a day of reality coming. I do. But it shouldn't be fear that causes us to go, well, I want to be on the good side. Like, you've got a groom right, who's made himself ready to go to battle for you, right? This is all about being compelled by goodness and, right, and, and mercy and kindness and love, and he's saying to you, please come. I'm sending out invitations, and I'm resending out invitations. Come, come, be a part of my family. And if you have not come to that place in your life, I'm going to pray right now you'd make that decision today.